We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. To lots of people, the idea that they can have any control over this catastrophic position that we're in with climate change, it just seems so remote. There will be fewer winners in tropical areas, so the impacts of habitat loss and climate change are much greater in the tropical parts of the world. And if we had a planet full of Darwins, I don't think we'd be in the situation that we are in now. This is Generation One from University College London, turning climate science and ideas into action. Hello and welcome to Generation One. I'm Helen Cheresky, a physicist and oceanographer here at University College London. Now these podcasts are all about looking at climate change from a really broad perspective. We're looking not just at the impact of climate change, but also what we individually and as a society can do better in the future. And also some of the big decisions that come with the situation we're now in. And of course, we're speaking to many of the brilliant people, both here at UCL and beyond, whose expertise is shaping the debate. I think that one of the most beautiful things about the Earth system is the way that incredibly large and very tiny all have their role to play. There's the perspective that considers billions of tonnes of carbon dioxide and huge volcanoes and the vast Amazon rainforest. But then you can also zoom in and see that raindrops and the poo from tiny ocean creatures and the call of a forest frog also matter. And down there in the small stuff buzzing around the wildflowers, crops and perhaps your garden or balcony is our subject for today, the bee. Two of my UCL colleagues will be joining me today to share their enthusiasm for these fascinating creatures and also to update us on why they matter so much for biodiversity and what the future holds for them. But before I introduce my guests, I just want to take a moment to remind you how you can get involved in the podcasts and also in UCL's climate work and campaigns. We've got a website, which is ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change. And there you'll find all kinds of news and research and practical information about how things that you do can make a difference. And we'd also love it if you'd rate and subscribe this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from and tell everyone. We always like, you know, share all the good stuff. That's what we're all about. So we're also on Instagram and Twitter, hashtag UCL Generation One. And you can comment there. Tell us what you think. We'd love to get your emails with not just comments, but also suggestions for future topics. And our email address is podcasts with an S at ucl.ac.uk. And if you want, you can send a voice note. And if we can, we'll include it in a future episode. You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. Imagine a warm summer day in the countryside, a view of fields and woods bathed in sunlight streaming down through a clear blue sky. The only sound is the gentle rustling of wind in the trees and the chirpings of birds, and then a distinctive buzz which stops abruptly as the bee finds a source of food. It's easy to take this for granted, summertime bees which are just always there, along with the availability of honey for your toast in the morning. But bees aren't just a nice feature of the landscape, they're essential pollinators, helping a huge proportion of our food crops to reproduce, and they're a critical part of a healthy ecosystem. But bees have been having a tough time recently, and the horrifying recent drop in bee numbers really matters both for the earth and for us.
I'm about to explore all of that with our two guests for today, and they are Dr. Tim Newbold from UCL's Biosciences Department. He's here in our UCL studio. Tim's a specialist in biodiversity and has co-authored a recent study about the alarming decline in the numbers of insects, and especially bumblebees. And on the line is our colleague, Professor Serian Sumner, also from the Biosciences Department. And Serian's research focuses on the facets of biodiversity, which ones account for an insect's behaviour and how that influences their ecology and resilience to environmental change. So thank you to both of you very much for joining us. We should begin at the beginning. We're going to be talking about bees mostly, but Tim, why should we care about bees? Bees are tremendously important, particularly as pollinators. So many of the foods that we eat are pollinated by bees, tomatoes, nuts and chocolate. All the important things. Yes. Um, and so is that just done by wild bees? or Because I, I hear a lot about commercial bees these days. Yeah, so a lot of crops can be pollinated by commercial bees. But we also know that wild bees are very important. And particularly wild bees can be important to step in when something goes wrong with, with commercial beehives. So, you know, there have been all these problems in, in recent years, for example, with colony collapse disorder and causing major losses of honeybee hives. And so for pollination to, to be able to continue into the, the future, we really need those wild bees to, to provide that sort of insurance effect. So we should make a point really strongly at the start here, which is that obviously bees are part of natural ecosystems and they're important because they do lots of things in nature. But from our point of view, a huge proportion of our food system, our food supply system depends on bees to help these crops reproduce. And if we didn't have the bees, those crops just wouldn't grow. Yes, absolutely. So lots of people have shown that um, where bees are lost that the the yields of, of crops are much lower and it's and it's many of the things so so if we look at the sort of the big staples of our diet the, the things that, that give us calories many of those don't need animal pollination or bee pollination but it's many of the things that bring variety to our diets. So Sarian there's something I want to be clear on from the start which I think is is often quite confusing which is that there's more than one species of bee and some of them do look a little bit like wasps and so could you just set out for us you know major bee species and, and perhaps what the difference between a bee and a wasp actually is? <laughs> yeah, there's certainly what more than one species of bee. I think there's about 22,000 species of bees, which is incredible. And as Tim says, they are really important pollinators. But there are actually over 100,000 species of wasps. <laughs> um, so the wasps are definitely outdoing the bees in that in, in species numbers. As you said, there are be, there are lots of bees that look a bit like a wasp and vice versa. And that's no surprise because actually bees are, are evolved from wasps. Bees are simply wasps that have lost the ability to hunt prey and converted their diet from feeding off, feeding their brood off uh, insect protein to feeding off pollen. So, so bees are just wasps that have forgotten how to hunt. But the main difference between a bee and a wasp in terms of their morphology is that wasps tend to have this very constricted wasp waist. Some, some wasps, I like to refer to them as kind of like the supermodels of the insect world because they've got this extraordinarily long, thin waist. Whereas bees tend to be a bit stumpier, a bit fatter and more rotund. The other way to spot tell a wasp from a bee is that bees tend to be a bit hairier 
the main characteristic is has it got this kind of wasp waist uh, so we're not just talking about bumblebees here I mean that's because the, the bumblebee is this sort of classic big fat hairy thing basically <laughs> very easy to identify but there are the, 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 thing, the, the flying things cover a, a wide range of types and sizes yeah, and in fact, there are some bees that look a bit very much like wasps. In fact, this time of year, in the spring, early spring in the UK, you'll see lots of insects appearing. And some of those, some of those bees, actually, there's hardly any wasps around at the moment. But there are some bees that look just like wasps. They're nomada bees, and they're, they, they've got the yellow and black stripes. They're actually look completely hairless. They've even got a slightly constricted waist. So to all intents and purposes, they look like a wasp. <laughs> okay, well, we've given everybody some food for thought when they're out and about and they some, see something they think is a bee. I'd like to get uh, from both of you something about why insects matter. You know, the popular image of an ecosystem is full of fluffy things with big eyes, basically, you know, rabbits and pandas and tigers and, and big things. If you talk to an ecologist, they tend to see ecosystems in terms of bacteria and insects. But we don't hear very much about what the insects are doing. Tim, perhaps first, what are the insects doing in an ecosystem? So I mean, just to pick up on the, the pollination example again, you know, looking across all of the animals that pollinate, and, and most of these are insects, you know, people have, have estimated that the pollination of our food crops that these insects provide and, and other animals is in the order of hundreds of billions of dollars every year to the world economy. And, you know, we know that insects play other roles like um, recycling of nutrients. They are predators of pests within our agricultural systems and, you know, many, many other things. Soil insects and other invertebrates are, you know, tremendously important, but, but very understudied. Serene, have you got anything to add on what these insects are all up to? Yeah, so I think um, from the wasp perspective, and I'm always trying to stick up for the wasps, we are very much behind where the bee world, the bee scientists are. So people like Tim, their research is kind of bouncing off an enormous body of, of work. But then it's such a biased uh, research market in that the bees have been so well studied in that respect to the detriment of other organisms other insects like wasps but what we do know is that wasps are really important in regulating the populations of other insects and arthropods and we know this purely based on their no one's actually you know very, there are very few studies that have actually bothered to try and look at it but we know that they must be important because they are predators um, so that could be anything from a your yellow jacket picnic wasp which will hunt anything that moves basically it'll hunt a caterpillar a fly a weevil a, your jam sandwich <laughs> and then you've got the parasitoid wasps which actually of all the wasps that have been studied in the terms of their value to us and the planet I think the parasitoid Parasitoid wasps are definitely the, the best studied. And so parasitoid wasps lay their eggs in or on other organisms, but they won't they don't build a nest. So they will just seek out a caterpillar or a beetle larva under some bark and they will insert their ovipositor, which is an egg-laying sheath, through the bark into the caterpillar or onto it and lay their egg. And then as the same as with the solitary wasps, that egg will hatch into a, a larva and then it'll eat that caterpillar. And so in doing that, those parasitoid wasps are are helping moderate these populations of insects. And that has been capitalized 
used by on by us by humans and by agriculturalists and what the what some in some parts of the world there are these huge factories that will farm parasitoid wasps such that at the right time of year when the pests get too difficult too high they will release these parasitoid wasps into their fields and the parasitoid wasps will do their business by laying their eggs in the pests and in doing so they help control the populations of pests which is brilliant it's that's biocontrol and that's using natural enemies to kill pests which is much more which is a much more sustainable method of farming than using lots of chemicals so we've got this picture of a very complicated set of interactions really this you know these insects are right in there in everything that's going on in the ecosystem so now we're going to get to the depressing bit which is which is you know it's, oh hooray for bees and wasps and now we're going to get to the depressing bit but tim you've had the the job recently of investigating threats to bees and other insects so just Perhaps, first of all, give us the broad picture on insects. How are insects doing? And then how are the bees doing? Yes, yeah, so in a, in a study that came out just, just last week, we were interested to look across a lot of different insects. So, you know, Sarian's already mentioned how bees get a lot of attention, so do butterflies in the insect world. Um, but we were interested to try and bring together as much information as we could from across many, many different insects. So beetles and bugs, wasps, um, and also many of the other really obscure groups that, that many people may not even have, have heard about. So, so we've got these sort of two really big environmental changes that are going on. Habitat loss, mainly from agriculture, and, and of course now climate change. And we were interested about how these two threats come together an impact in insect biodiversity. And so we, we put together this, this really big data set using data from all across the world. And what we found was that where intensive agriculture, intensive farming combines with substantial recent climate change, that we saw losses of around half of the number of insects that we would expect to see in natural habitats where there hasn't been climate change. And over what period of time has there been that decline? People haven't been collecting insect samples over long periods of time. And so what we had to rely on for, for this work was taking a sort of a, a snapshot of what's going on today. So we were looking at places that have seen these threats and comparing them with places that haven't seen these threats. And what we see is that, you know, in those cases, in, in the most impacted areas, we're seeing these losses of around a half of, of the numbers of insects. So we don't, we can't really sort of put a, a specific time frame on the, on those declines. That is a lot of insects that aren't there. What is it that means there are fewer insects? And then what effects does it have if you only have half as many insects? Yeah, so, you know, what was really important in this study is, is how these two threats work off each other, making each other worse. And we, you know, we think there are a number of reasons why that, that happens. So you know, one is that when we turn natural habitats into farmland the the local climate gets hotter and drier so you'll notice you know if you go for a, a walk on a summer's day you come out of a patch of woodland into a bit of farmland you'll feel the temperature go up you know you can see that that the, the, the land is drier and so this is sort of adding on top of so all the sort of the big scale climate change that we know is happening these sorts of local climate changes are adding on top of that and the other thing is that we know that with climate change, animals and plants need to move 
towards the poles of the earth and they need to move up the slopes of hills and mountains to um, you know move to the cooler conditions that they can that they can handle and if you're having to move through landscapes that are now covered with farmland that's much harder than than when it was all for most animals and plants than than when it was all natural habitats and what difference does it i mean it sounds like this wasn't specifically in your study but if you take away half the insects from a landscape what what are the consequences likely very important you know for we, we talked already about you know all the many things that insects do for many of those things we don't have a very good understanding of you know if you take out half the insects then this is what will happen. We have a better idea for pollination and we think that, you know, if you lose half the insects, then evidence suggests that we will see reductions in in the yields of all of those those crops that we know depend on insects for pollination. But for many of the other things, you know, we don't we don't have a very good understanding. Safe to say because we know how important insects are that that impact will be very important because the impacts could be so huge. We need to be a, take a precautionary approach. We, you know, we need to be very careful with messing around with ecological systems in this way. And Sarian, you study insect behaviour and, and that also is impacted by climate change. How does that work? Yeah, that's a really a good point. So, so climate change is affected, as, t- as Tim said, the, the habitat change is really affecting uh, insect behaviour. Lots of insects are obviously declining but there are the interesting ones I think are the ones that are showing resilience so where they're able to somehow adapt or um, modify their behavior such that they can survive in that new new environment and one of the traits of behavior and why it's so potentially could be sort of like the silver bullet of you know can something save the insects or indeed any other organism is that its behavior is so responsive it's very plastic and so we like to refer to it as the sort of the, the front line interaction with the environment. So if you have a, a, a behaviour is, you know, it responds immediately to a change in your stimulus uh, around you. So if organisms are able to adapt, to adjust their behaviour such that they can respond in a way that means that they can either avoid whatever the, the the climate change issue is or that they can adapt such that they can survive with it within it then that's a really powerful tool so one example of that is not so much in insects but in the laying time of of egg laying with birds and there's some fantastic data sets because obviously birds are really well studied as well that they show that the the time at which birds are uh, laying eggs is getting earlier and that is partly because it's warming but the planet the environment's warming but also the food of the insect of the bird which are insects are also shifting their phenology such that they are emerging earlier in the season and so you know we've been talking about the impact of on ecosystems and it is understanding the insects is critical to you know how the insects are going to respond to climate change and all the fantastic work that Tim's group's been doing is so critical in understanding the knock-on effects to all the other organisms within that ecosystem. So I'm interested in the public response to all of this. So, so Tim, the you know this recent report and and previous reports, you know they get a lot of press coverage, which actually is really positive, I think, because they're not pandas; they're little insects that perhaps people don't think of. You know, many people I think would think you when they think of an insect, which isn't really fair to the insect. 
But do you notice, have you noticed a shift in the public attitude to this? Are people taking insects more seriously now? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think I think people are now realising all the things that insects do for us. And it's been really encouraging to see over the last few years how the public have really got on board with this research around insect declines and, and you know, really understanding why it matters for us. So we keep waving the flag for insects. So when it comes to to both of you, perhaps Sarian first, you know, we, we have these stresses from climate change, which can take many forms, you know, floods and droughts and weather changes, you know, weather that's not in the place it normally is, and all sorts of other things. Is the solution to this is this is, is the way to take care of insect populations just to, you know, stop climate change happening, which we would all like to do for lots of reasons? Or are there specific things that we can do to help insects? Well, that's quite a hard question. <laughs> I think if we knew the answer to that, we would... Um, well, I think we do know the answer is that we have to stop the way that we're living and stop being quite so uh, so obsessed with consuming. But I think to, to lots of people, the idea that they can have any control over this catastrophic position that we're in with climate change... It just seems so remote, you know, people just don't feel that they have the power, you know, everybody's doing their little bit to recycle and, you know, grow wildflowers in their garden and stuff, but people feel slightly powerless, really, that it's just too, it feels like it's too big a thing. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a big movement at the moment to, to sort of change that and to make people think about what they can do and, and every little bit counts. And I think one of the most valuable things that many people have at, at their disposal is their own gardens. And, you know, even if they haven't got a garden, they will have a window where they could put a window box out or a roof where they could put plants or have green roofs and or put up insect uh, houses. As Tim says, we've come a long way in the last few years in how people respond to insects and people's perceptions of insects. But it is still very blinkered. You know, people absolutely love bees and they love butterflies. But anything beyond that, they have to be a slightly peculiar person if they like, you know, they will openly admit that they love beetles. And God forbid that they would ever admit that they like wasps. Well, Darwin um, and was a big fan of beetles, you know. <laughs> well, exactly indeed. And, uh, indeed. <laughs> and Darwin is obviously, an, was an exceptional person and if we had a planet full of Darwins I don't think we'd be in the situation that we are in now but I think you know that we are doing a fantastic things for bees we are you know you go to any old garden centre you and you're stumbling over aisles full of bee hotels and these are all fantastic things but they are they they come with caveats so for example you know bee hotels they look they're designed to look really pretty and beautiful and engaging so you want to have them in your garden which is obviously really important but maybe one thing we should be encouraging people to do is to put out different types of different smaller different types of bee hotels or bundles of, of of sticks in different parts of your garden so that the insects can use your garden in the way that they would want to use a habitat and have their territories and have their nesting sites and then the other thing that really frustrates me is that we have this no mow may, which is fantastic. And I live in a rural village in in Oxfordshire, and they, you know, my neighbours and everyone in the churchyards, so they go crazy for this no mow may, and they let everything grow, and it's just really beautiful. By the end of May, it's just absolutely gorgeous. And then comes the first of June, and everybody mows their lawns, 
and you know all that good work is is gone because you know that lots lots of insects have taken up residence in that fantastic overgrown beautiful lawn uh, they've started laying their eggs or provisioning and or growing and then they get killed they just they just get mown down. So, Tim, Sarah in there has laid out things that, you know, individuals can do. But a lot of this is about society. So, so from the point of view of a system, you know, a country that has to make decisions, what can our country or our government or our systems do to make life better for insects? Yeah. So, you know, fundamentally, we, we need our governments to take action on climate change and to take action on, on habitat loss. Because our recent research is showing that climate change is very important, but it's not happening in isolation. And and unless we tackle both climate change and and habitat loss, then, you know, we're not we're not going to get anywhere close to solving the problem. And I think there are very encouraging signs that, that, you know, governments are now taking this this seriously. And just to pick up on on a really good point that that Serian made, actually, around how some insects are better able to adapt to the things that we're throwing at them. One of the really important things that's emerged from our recent work is that that there will be fewer winners in tropical areas. So the impacts of habitat loss and climate change are much greater in the tropical parts of the world. And these are areas that have often been overlooked in previous big studies of insect biodiversity. And so at the same time, you know, many of those foods that we consume we're flying them in from from tropical countries so you know i think the other thing that we can do you know sarian makes some really great points about how we manage our gardens the other big thing that we can do as individuals is to make sensible choices when we're shopping so you know think about when you're picking up that tropical mango or or whatever it is in the supermarket maybe we can reduce the amount of food that we're bringing in from tropical countries if we are buying those those sorts of foods, then looking for sustainable certification, looking for things like shade-grown coffee, for example. And that can, could make a really big difference. Well, just finally, for both of you, are there any common sort of misconceptions? We're, we're about to run out of time, but I'm curious about whether there are any sort of popular myths about bees and insects more generally and wasps, I'm sure, for Sarian. Are there any sort of things that you'd like to put on the record to correct why you've got the opportunity now? Um, Sarian first, perhaps. Well, don't get me started. Briefly. You know, (laughs) wasps are, what's the point of wasps? I get asked that all the time. And everybody understands that bees are important for pollination. And I think my one liner is that wasps are nature's pest controllers. And in a world without wasps, we would have to use a lot more nasty chemicals, which would have detrimental effects on the wider biodiversity of the planet. Okay, well, I hope everyone listening is now convinced about wasps. Tim, what about you? I think I'll pick up on the threats again. So, you know, I think there's been this misconception, even in scientific communities, that habitat loss is the thing that we're facing right now and climate change is sort of a problem for the future. But we're already seeing in our research that that climate change is having these really profound impacts on on insect biodiversity. So we've got to get a handle both on climate change and, and habitat loss in order to solve the insect biodiversity declines. Those are two very strong messages to finish on. So thank you very much to both of you. Um, anyone listening can find out more about both Tim and Sarian's research on the UCL Biodiversity Department website. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action.
We're just about to get Mark's roundup of all the climate news stories that you need to know about this week. But just before that, just want to spend a moment to encourage you to get involved in the podcast and UCL's climate work. You can find all about that at ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change. So you can rate and subscribe to the podcast. We'd love it if you do that. Do send us some feedback, send us comments and questions to the email address podcasts at ucl.ac.uk and do connect to us on Twitter and Instagram. But now it's time to join Mark Maslin for the Climate News Roundup. Here is the climate news for the week starting the 16th of May 2022. Just announced the EU is aiming to bolster renewables and energy savings goals as part of their 195 billion euro plan to end its dependency on Russian fossil fuels by 2027. In other news, UK buildings are directly responsible for about a quarter of the UK's carbon emissions and a new standard, the UK Net Zero Carbon Building Standard, is being launched by industry. Also led by the Church of England's Pension Board and the University's Superannuation Scheme, a dozen UK pension funds with a collective £400 billion in assets are joining forces to support climate transition in emerging markets. While around the world, Brazil is planning to create an internal carbon market and to speed the process up, rather than wait for legislation to be approved by Congress, they're going for a presidential decree, allowing a much quicker move towards the development of the market. An intense heat wave is sweeping through northern India with temperatures hitting a record 49.2 degrees Celsius. Now this is the fifth heat wave to hit Delhi since March. And also, the World Weather Attribution Report has found that climate change did indeed increase the rainfall that caused the devastating floods in South Africa last month. These were the worst floods for over 60 years and left more than 430 people dead, tens of thousands displaced and millions of dollars worth of damage. That's it for this episode of Generation One from UCL, turning climate science and ideas into action. Thank you very much indeed to my guest, Dr. Tim Newbold and Professor Sarian Sumner. And don't forget to leave a comment and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. The next edition of this series of Generation One from UCL will be available next Wednesday when my co-host Mark Maslin will be talking about apps. Those little bits of software on our phone that help us do things, inform us about the world and perhaps can make a difference in the actions we need to take around climate change. So listen in to hear more about that. But for this week, goodbye. Goodbye.